Last week, we began a series in the book of Revelation, specifically looking at the seven churches in Revelation. Now, we're doing this series for a few different reasons. First, we want to start 2021 with, a, with the hopeful reality that Jesus stands in the midst of his church, like we see in Revelation, no matter what the church is going through, whether it be persecution or poverty or plague, Jesus stands in his church and is with his church. What we need, what we find in the opening chapters of Revelation is that Jesus stands in the middle of his church and he brings both encouragement and criticism. And we need this. We need Jesus to stand in our church, Reality San Francisco, and encourage us and to criticize some things that may, you're misaligned here. Now realign to my vision for what I have for the church. This is really important. We need to know what Jesus thinks about his church so we as a church can live into the vision Jesus himself has for us. But what makes this series more unique is that the elders of our church will be teaching through this series together. It's the first time this has ever happened. This is really exciting. Each week for the next five weeks, you'll be hearing from a different elder teach the passage that we're in and encourage our church specifically. It's been a very fun project for me to work with the elders in this way. And we've been praying a lot together for our church as we move into 2021. So today, we get to hear from Wilson Leung, uh, a native San Franciscan, uh, husband, dad of two, and he's an engineer at Intel. So would you please welcome Wilson. Thanks, Dave. Good morning, church. It's really good to be with you, albeit virtually. I wish we could be here all together, but I'm so thankful. Last week, I got to see many of you on the, our church Zoom birthday call and some of you at the drive-through at the church HQ. I'm humbled and honored to share God's word this morning, especially post-2020, and we are still in the early days of 2021. The afternoon of Thursday, March 5th, 2020, COVID-19 became very real to my family. Gabriel called me and said that school was canceled the rest of the day and everyone was to leave campus immediately. A student's parent at the school, that parent tested positive and it was the first of two COVID cases in San Francisco. Students were allowed back to school a week later on March 11th only for the very next day, public schools closed the following three weeks, all the way through spring break. It's now spring semester 2021, and students still haven't returned to classes on campus. You each have your own moments of where were you, what were you doing when 2020 changed? For me, March 5th was just the beginning. Each January, we look forward to a year full of potential, all the things we will accomplish, the places we will go, the fun we will, ha we will have, but no one anticipates, let, let alone desires, a year of suffering. But our world teaches us not to expect suffering. Rather, we do whatever we can to avoid it. If we can do it or have it easier, faster, cheaper, then let's do it. But Jesus calls us to a different life. What if discipleship to Jesus is following him into a life of suffering? 
Join with, join with me in our Bibles in Revelation chapter 2, verse 11. And we'll read what Jesus said to the church in Smyrna. I'll read. Uh, the verses should be on your screen, and I'll pray, and uh, let's see what Jesus says. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I humbly ask for your grace as I bring your word to your church. Thank you for your presence where each of us are, especially in a time we are not gathering physically to worship together. God, I know you are here, and your spirit is with our church. Amen. We are called to a life of discipleship to Jesus, a life that is counter to what the world expects and naturally wants. This text may be really hard to hear from Jesus after the year we endured. He tells the church in Smyrna, you have suffered and you will suffer more. It's natural to fixate on the suffering itself or to let our initial reaction overwhelm us. You're thinking, I don't want to suffer. Who does? In today's text, we will see that Jesus prepares us for suffering. He tells us to expect it and not be afraid of it. He also says that he is with us in it. And lastly, we will see how Jesus says to remain faithful to the end. First, in verse 10, Jesus directly tells the church, don't be afraid of suffering, expect it. We are not to be afraid of suffering because Jesus himself suffered and overcame it and has already told us that we, his disciples, will suffer as well. Jesus tells us to expect suffering. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus asks his disciples who they say that he is. Peter responds, the Christ of God. But Jesus warned them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus tells the disciples that he will be persecuted and suffer. And though not mentioned here, he's going to go die on the cross. Continuing, verse 23 is the classic call to the discipleship. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Denying yourself is to be able and willing to give it all up, even your own life, for the sake of placing your faith in Jesus, literally putting your life in Jesus' hands, daily taking up your cross, daily willing to die for Christ. 
They didn't know it at the time, but Jesus not only foreshadows his death on a cross, but the disciples would lose their lives following him. I trust that you've read the Gospels and are pretty familiar with Jesus' life and his suffering. But what about the church in Smyrna? Now, track with me for a minute as I go a little ancient world history here. And it's really important because it sheds a lot of light on what Jesus' message to Smyrna and what they were not afraid, what they were not to be afraid of. Smyrna, like Ephesus, was a beautiful, wealthy port city on the coast of the Aegean Sea. All the trade of the adjacent valley flowed through Smyrna and went out via its harbor, very similar to our Bay Area. Smyrna was also deeply religious, a city that drifted away from worshiping the pantheon of Rome's gods and instead worshiped the Roman emperor. Emperor worship began as a show of gratitude to Rome, but toward the end of the first century, worshiping Caesar became mandatory. Once a year, a Roman citizen had to burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the godhead of Caesar, and then they would receive a certificate to show he performed his religious duty. Christians were also required to do this, but they would not, not even with their fingers crossed behind their back, so to speak. Just a pinch of incense, utter Caesar is Lord, and Christians could have gone on their way worshiping their God, their one true God, but they would not. This wasn't a give to Caesar what is Caesar type thing. This was a Daniel in the lion's den thing. Their faithfulness came down to a pinch of incense and three little words. No big deal, right? Nope, it was a big deal. But they would not compromise and call Caesar Lord. Christians were literally outlaws, putting their lives at risk to follow Jesus. Recall what Jesus said in Luke 9, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. The church was doing just that. While Smyrna was a prosperous city like ours, the Christians were actually extreme, were in extreme poverty. In verse 9, Jesus says he knows their tribulation and their severe poverty. Then in verse 10, he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Wait a second here. <laughs> There's more suffering than all the suffering they were already suffering. I think some of you are reacting to that, like we just came out of 2020, and I'm going to tell you 2021 might be a lot harder. I don't know. <laughs> Look at verse 10, though. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Let's pay special attention here. Revelation is a revealing. Jesus is revealed. And Jesus is revealing that the source of their suffering is satanic. He's revealing what is really going on here. There was a spiritual aspect to their suffering that wasn't readily observable in the material world. Though carried out by man, Satan, the devil, would put some of them in prison. Prison was not unheard of for first century Christians. If you read in Acts, King Herod imprisoned Peter before an angel freed him. Paul and Silas were also imprisoned after casting out a demon from a female slave. Prison, at this time, 
was not for rehabilitation nor punishment, but to await trial and potential execution. While most of us have not experienced suffering and persecution as severe as the Christians of Smyrna, we have suffered for following Jesus. Perhaps it's from our families, friends, or colleagues who put down our devotion to Jesus or ridicule why we hold fast to what seems to be outdated morals and values. It's human nature to want to be liked and accepted, to want life to be easy and pain-free. Of course, we also suffer like anyone else when catastrophe strikes and a pandemic impacts us in so many different ways. The world's wisdom and its ways, they don't prepare us for suffering, but Jesus does. In becoming his disciple, he prepares us. He tells us that we will suffer as he did. This is normal for following Jesus. So don't let it catch you unaware. What do we make of the suffering and persecution we experience for being faithful followers of Jesus? What is the point? In the New American Standard Version, the translation, verse 10 here in Revelation says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you will be tested. Though persecution is from the devil, it's implied that Jesus is permitting it so that the Christians will be tested, or rather, proven. The words tested and proven are the same Greek word, perazo. It means to allow evils upon one in order to prove his character and the steadfastness of this faith. You're thinking, what kind of God allows this? Consider any competitive sport. Sometimes sports writers or coaches describe an athlete being really good during practices, but it hasn't translated to real games. Or the opposite, the player has very poor practices, but does great in a game. Obviously, it'd be, great to be, it'd be good to be great at both, but the game is the testing. It is the proving. Practice matters, but what really matters is what happens in the game. It is the same with suffering. In English, we even have a cliche for it, trials and tribulation. As if that weren't enough, James takes it even further. He says these trials are not just to be endured, but we are to consider it pure joy when we face them. Stay with me, don't log off right now. (laughs) If we weren't running counter to the world enough, James just went for it all. He writes, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Again, the testing, the word testing here means proving, though it's a different Greek word. But note, we are to consider pure joy whenever we face trials. James doesn't say consider the trials pure joy. We're Christians, not masochists. The trials produce perseverance, making us mature and complete. Then it seems that James is saying without trials, perseverance won't be produced and we will not be mature, we will not be complete. 
That being said, this is so, so hard. It's completely opposite from what the world tells us and opposite our natural human nature. But as you can see, Jesus is nothing like the word, the world. So let's put this first part all together. As Jesus' disciples, from the start, he has told us to expect suffering and persecution and not to be afraid of it because he also suffered and was persecuted. Our suffering and persecution is not for nothing, but they are to test or prove our faith, producing perseverance, which will make us mature and complete. Next. Jesus knows our suffering and invites us into intimacy. Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander. Jesus knows. He knew the suffering of the church of Smyrna. He knows all our suffering as well, all of it. Often in the midst of suffering and persecution, we wonder, does God really know? Does he really see me? Where is he? Why doesn't he do something? We call ourselves into doubt, just as the serpent posed to Eve in the garden. Does God, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? One of my favorite books is The Jesus I Never Knew by Philip Yancey. In the first chapter, he writes about being snowbound in a Colorado mountain cabin with nothing to do, but read the Bible, page by page. Yancey writes, I tend to write as a means of confronting my own doubts. My book titles, Where is God When It Hurts? Disappointment with God? Betray me. I return again and again to the same questions, as if fingering an old wound that never quite heals. Does God care about the misery down here? Do we really matter to God? I went through it slowly, page by page. In the Old Testament, I found myself identifying with those who boldly stood up to God. Moses, Job, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, the psalmists. As I read, I felt I was watching a play with human characters who acted out their lives of small triumph and large tragedy on stage, while periodically calling to an unseen stage manager, you don't know what it's like out here. Job was most brazen, flinging to God this accusation. Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as mortal sees? Every so often, I could hear the echo of a booming voice from far off stage behind the curtain. Yeah, and you don't know what it's like back here either. It said to Moses, to the prophets, most loudly to Job. When I got to the Gospels, however, the accusing voices stilled. God, if I may use such language, found out what life is like in the confines of planet Earth. Jesus got acquainted with grief 
in person in a brief but troubled life, not far from the dusty plains where Job had travailed. Of the many reasons for incarnation, surely one was to answer Job's accusation. Do you have eyes of flesh? For a time, God did. Yancey is saying it is natural to wonder if God really cares about our suffering. He wondered. Many characters in the Old Testament wondered too. As Yancey put it, they dared and stood up to God. Yet we feel guilty that we don't have as much faith as we think we should. We feel guilty questioning God. But let's put that aside and grapple with God. He can take it. He's God. As we bring ourselves, as we bring our struggles to him, he meets us. God knows and cares. Jesus knows and cares. Jesus came fully God, fully human. And not only saw, but lived our experience on this planet, just like you and me. He died and rose again, then ascended to heaven. In Revelation, it is the ascended Jesus who is revealed and who knows. It just takes one reading through Revelation to see a pattern in the letters to the seven churches and the breaks in the pattern. As Dave mentioned, I'm an engineer. So I wanted to geek out and include some tables to illustrate the pattern, but that will have to be another time. Or better yet, you can do that after the service and have the fun for yourself. <laughs> One part of the pattern is Jesus speaks an I know commendation to each church. To Ephesus, I know your works. To Smyrna, I know your tribulation and poverty. I won't spoil it for the next elder. <laughs> again and again, Jesus says, I know. If Jesus knows these seven churches, indeed, he knows your works, your tribulation, and poverty. The all-knowing, always-present, all-powerful, loving, and holy creator of the, of the universe knows you and knows what you have suffered and will suffer and is present with you. What comfort does Jesus knowing bring? Sometimes we suffer alone, in silence. But Jesus knows, even if we hide it. Remember, after the resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven so that he could send the Spirit who lives with you and will be with you always, each one of his followers. He not only knows, but he is present with you in your sufferings. The Spirit comforts you in the midst of it all. Even when it's over, the Spirit is there to help with the healing. In each of the letters, Jesus uniquely identifies himself, also part of the pattern. To Smyrna, he is the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. The title, the first and the last, is a reference to how God refers to himself and is only used for God as occurs several times in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 44, this is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, 
there is no God. Jesus clearly identifies himself as God by using the title, the first and the last. Further, he was dead and has come to life. He's telling us, I am the same Jesus who died on the cross and was resurrected on the third day. To the church in Smyrna, it would have been of great comfort to read these words of Jesus, the first and the last, who is God, who suffered, died on the cross, conquered death, when Jesus himself is assuring them that he knows their suffering and exhorts them to be faithful. We have confidence in Jesus' words because of who he is, God, the first and the last. Finally, church, be faithful and persevere. Jesus called the Smyrna church and is calling us to be faithful even unto death, and he will give them and us the crown of life. In Revelation 2, verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. The victor's crown in the New American Standard translation is, is the crown of life. It's also mentioned in James 1. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. In both places, the crown of life is given to those who have persevered under trial to the end. This is better, far better than anything we could receive in this life. As hard as this life is, as difficult as it is to follow Jesus in this world, this life is not all there is. There is another world, another life, another reward, a reward that doesn't perish. um, Jesus and James tells us it is the crown of life. Imagine being crowned by Jesus after all the hardship, persecution, and pain of this life. This is why we must remain faithful. Church, to close, I want to share a story, the story of Polycarp, for several reasons. One, uh, Dave encouraged me that, uh, to share this as it's church history. It's important for us to know as Christians. Two, he, Polycarp is an example of faithfully following Jesus to the end, though extreme. Polycarp was the bishop of the church in Smyrna. Around 155 AD, Polycarp returned to Smyrna after a trip to Rome. Persecution of Christians was severe at the time, and his churches, at his church's urging, he left the city and hid at a farm. Praying one day, Polycarp received a vision from God. His pillow was engulfed in flames, and he concluded that he would die, burned at the stake. A warrant was issued for his arrest, and soldiers eventually found him. They were surprised and and embarrassed that they had been sent to arrest a frail old man. On the way back to Smyrna, they offered him a pinch of incense in front of a statue of Caesar and prompted him to say, Caesar is Lord. They pleaded with him to do it. At first silent, he calmly said no. 
Now angry and annoyed, the soldier shoved him to the ground, and the bruised but resolute Polycarp walked the rest of the way to the gladiator arena. Arriving at the arena, the games had already begun. Christians had already been martyred, but the mob, wanting more, chanted, bring out Polycarp. Polycarp was persuaded again to renounce Jesus. The crowd shouted, away with the atheists, referring to the Christians. Polycarp only had to agree with the mob and repeat, away with the atheists. Instead, he responded, away with those atheists, waving his hand at the mob. The proconsul said to him, take the oath and revile Christ and I'll set you free. Polycarp answered, for 86 years, I've served Jesus. How dare I now revile my king? The proconsul gave up and declared, Polycarp has confessed that he's a Christian. When the crowd demanded Polycarp be burnt, he remembered the dream of the burning pillow and took courage in God. He said to his executioners, the fire you threaten burns for a time and is soon extinguished. There is a fire you know nothing about, the fire of the judgment to come and of eternal punishment, the fire reserved for the ungodly. But why do you hesitate? Do what you want. They arranged a great pile of wood, set up a pole in the middle. As they tied Polycarp to it, he prayed, I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I may receive a portion in the number of the martyrs in the cup of Christ. They set the wood on fire and a great wall of flame shot up to the sky, but it never touched Polycarp. God protected him. Furious that Polycarp would not burn, the executioner stabbed Polycarp with a long spear and streams of blood gushed from his body and it seemed to extinguish the fire. Dear church, may we each live out a faith like Polycarp. Do not be afraid. Jesus knows and he is with you. Be faithful as we endure this pandemic and shelter in place. Continue to be faithful to the end, even amidst persecution. And our Lord Jesus, the first and the last, who died and is alive, will give you the crown of life. Worship team, you may join me on stage. Let's pray together, church. Heavenly Father, may the one who has an ear, let him hear what your spirit says. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for your message. Thank you for the spirit that lives in us, that never leaves us as your follower, as we follow you, Father. May we walk each day with you faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.